Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. In this episode, I'm happy to interview Brooklyn-based artist Kennedy Yanko. She is the first painter, sculptor that I've had the opportunity to feature. Kennedy's practice is profound. I say that not only because of her agile ability to change course to more deeply explore her creativity, but because her work is unique. I respect that she's a risk taker and aims to continuously feed her intellect. Her sculptures pair her paintings with metal and found objects. What is most intriguing is the fact that Kennedy has redefined her paintings as skins. She combines skins with hard objects. Imagine that. She has exhibited her work in several shows, both solo and group shows, and has been the recipient of prestigious awards. I should also mention that in 2018, she was named Artist of the Week during Armory Week by Milk Magazine. She exhibited in Cry of Victory and Short Walks to Freedom as part of Hank Willis Thomas's National for Freedoms project. Top galleries acknowledge her talent, and I look forward to following her for years to come. Her work is aesthetically beautiful. Let's get started, and once again, welcome to my Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I appreciate the listen. I'm delighted to interview you today. Um, you're the first painter sculpture featured, and I'm curious to learn more about your practice of creating a unique form of painting as well as working with metals. So let's start this con- conversation with you basically tell us, telling us about yourself and your passion for creating sculpture. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I'm honored to be a part of your your project and your dissecting of minds. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm, I'm an artist to the core. I've been an artist my whole life. I, um, a funny story is that, you know, when I was three years old, my brother and I were going to this preschool and we had these little fish that we were supposed to paint. And he really meticulously took his time to fill out every little crevice and corner and make the lines straight. And I just like, like splooged all over mine. <laughs> you and did the opposite with boys and girls. You'd think. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I brought it home. My parents were like, Oh my God, this is amazing. And he, and he, they didn't really say too much about his, but they thought mine was just so brilliant. <laughs> and you know, to this day, he just kind of uh, always pokes fun at me. And he's just like, you know, they were grooming you for this. They were, they were preparing you for it to be an artist. Um, but it, it, it's really just always been, um, such a cathartic and, and uh, special thing for me to be able to make work. So, you know, when I was five, I was taking watercolor classes with 80-year-old ladies and 
in middle school, I was taking um, printmaking classes with my dad at community college. And, um, you know, I just always had their emotional support behind um, the things that I, that I was interested in. And, um, you know, by the time I was in, at the end of middle school, I had, you know, a pretty regular studio practice. I was working on canvases abstractly, always working particularly in abstraction um, because of my, my own personal connection to like physicality and movement and just the, maybe just the quick responses seem to resonate with me. I, I can't, I can't stay in one place for longer than an hour or a couple of minutes. So um, it made a lot of sense for me. Uh, and also at that same time, when I was 15, I started practicing Qigong and Tai Chi. Um, so I met my Sifu, my teacher, uh, who I was working with. And we worked pretty intensely for seven years. We worked from 14, from, from 15 to 21. That's um, impressive. Wow. So it was interesting to have these two practices that, uh, gave me a lot of tools and a lot of grounding um, practices um, to navigate through my life. So it was interesting how they both kind of began to blossom at the same time and parallel to each other. It's a lot of discipline. Um, you know, yeah, there is. And it's, it's so, it's a, I just believe, I really believe that there's a lot of liberation in discipline. I talk a lot about how important it is to follow your intuitive responses and to feel good. And I think some people might get confused when I say feel good. And one thing that I know is that like, I'm going to eat a pint of ice cream and that might feel good for a moment, but I know later it's not going to feel very good. So like, I think it's really, for me, it's been about, you know, making choices that ultimately will serve me and ultimately make me feel good and more whole and more grounded. That's healthy. Mm -hmm. So um, Yeah. So after, let's see, where was I? Uh, so I was painting um, when I was 18. I did my first solo art show um, called Wu Wei. And leading up to this, I had produced like a bunch of my own shows. Like I would go to restaurants and coffee shops in St. Louis. And I'd, you know, I'd make like six or seven pieces and I'd invite my friends and their, and their parents out to come and see my art show. And so like that whole process was really embedded in me that I was, that I wanted to be a professional artist who was putting their work in the world and sharing it with people and that it was, wasn't only, you know, uh, just a cathartic art practice. So even at a young age, I realized like there are two separate worlds for me in making art. And one of them is, is my, my, my private practice and my, um, you know, personal curiosities and philosophies. And the other one is, um, you know, what does it mean to run a business? What does it mean to be, um, to, to create things for other people to engage with and, and to have that gaze on, on my work. Um, so I, even at a young age, I was really, um, it was really important to me to separate those two worlds. Um, and then, so when I did the Away collection, um, what I was doing at that time, I was pouring onto canvas. So I was pouring large bodies of paint onto lots of different sizes of canvases. And I was getting these beautiful kind of fractal-like images from the way that the paint would, would interact with itself. I don't know if you've ever um, opened up a paint can and you've seen kind of this little galaxy that's happened from the paint that hasn't been stirred up entirely. So I was making large versions of that. Um, and the night that I did the opening of that show, I wanted to, I wanted to take paint off the canvas. I was like, oh, I got to take this further. I got to, I got to figure out what to do with this next. How can I, how can I remove these, this barrier of the square? Um, so I thought about that for a year. Uh, and then I did a show of just paint skins by themselves. So I was pouring paint. I had removed the canvas and I was pouring paint and I was making these large bodies of paint that kind of looked like 
um, they were marbleized in time and standing still in time because I was still having those fractal like details happening. Um, and I was installing the, the paint skins on the wall, hanging them from the ceiling, and, you know, just kind of making these little worlds that had like these bodies of paint. Um, and in that moment, I felt like I needed, I needed to have more structure and more body behind the work. So I was, um, I was working with rubber. Um, so I would take, I would, I would have rubber on the floor. I would throw the paint into the air and the paint would kind of atom bomb. <laughs> and then I would take my body underneath the rubber um, and, and kind of expand it into its, its final composition. It would dry flat and then I would cut around however it would show up. So this was kind of the beginning of, um, I guess, more of a conceptual aspect starting to like rise in my practice. Um, these ideas of Taoism, um, receptivity, um, you know, just kind of this transmutation of, of energy from the body to the paint. And also, I think just these ideas around painting without exactly painting. So I, I wasn't touching the paint. I was, I was moving it with my body. I was, um, wasn't wow. using brushes. Um, and then once it would dry, after I cut it out, I would install it three-dimensionally on the wall. So I was, I, and then for, then I, and I worked like this for about seven years. So um, I would then use these, these kind of rubber backings as my canvases. So I began to rework them and I would paint them the same way that I would my canvases. Um, and I was working through painting. I was kind of just like getting that out of my body and getting that into the world. And I was also beginning to engage with this conversation of, of, of the three dimension of sculpture, um, you know, and, and, and how they were presenting themselves. Um, at the same time, um, when I would like after, after Wu Wei, when I was 18, um, I had gone to the San Francisco Art Institute in California um, for my freshman year of college. And I was going as a painting major and art history minor but I fell in love with new genres. I became entirely enamored with um, installation work. Artists like Ulfra Liaison, Anne Hamilton, um, and, and, and just these artists that were creating environments and having conversations about things that just made sense to me. And I just thought, oh, well, this is, this is what we're supposed to be putting in the world. We're supposed to be shaking people's souls with our work, not putting objects on the wall. Um, so I just got really obsessed with that. And I created a, um, a proposal for a, a piece that I, for, for a project I wanted to do. And I actually left school um, when I first, when the, the second semester ended, I wasn't planning on leaving. Like I still had all my stuff there, but um, I, I went to Rome for the summer to visit one of my best friends and ended up spending the whole summer there. And I just felt like, I really wanted to be in the world. Like I wanted, to, I wanted to network this project. I wanted, if I, if I was making work, I wanted to be doing it like on my own, um, my own time, my own schedule um, and my own curriculum really, which I don't know if I'd always recommend that for people. But for me at that time, it really made sense. Um, and I came to New York. Um, my friend who was a, a music producer was working with this place called the Living Theater. And the Living Theater, uh, if you guys haven't heard of them before, um, they are a really famous avant-garde political activist theater company that came to rise in the uh, 1950s and 60s in New York. And they were a lot, they were more famous in, in Europe, in Paris and in Italy, but they were based in, in New York. And Judith Malena and Julian Beck were the founders. And Julian Beck was one of the abstract expressionists. 
Um, and Judith was a entire force of poetry and creativity and um, witchery. <laughs> she was amazing. Um, so I ended up coming to New York and living with them. Um, I had no interest in performance whatsoever. Um, I was, um, I, I just, uh, I just wanted to be in New York and, you know, Judith really didn't like me that much at first. And she was like, she, she thought I was just like a waspy little girl. Um, but I ended up, I ended up living with them for four years. So I, I was living in the, we were on the lower East side at the time and we lived in the theater in the basement. So my bedroom was the dressing room. There was another guy in the AV room. There was another guy in the office. And then Judith had an apartment on the first floor right above us. And she was 85 years old at the time. So, you know, the in the history of the Living Theater, it was really more, it wasn't just a theater. It was kind of this, um, it was a place for creatives of all kinds to come. Like, in, you know, when they were at their heyday, Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac and, and um, all these artists from different mediums, Bob Dylan, um, painters like everybody was really there and it was really a place for incubating in a way so I you know I when we were working on something it was an entire collaborative um thing so you know we would do set design we would do performance um we all cared for Judith and you know the, the it was it was a commune basically and it w was run in somewhat of an anarchistic style um so it was a really interesting and informative time for me in my life I think just to have that kind of lineage coming to New York uh, Al Pacino was helping with the rent. Yoko Ono was helping with the rent. So they had this kind of, uh, I don't, I don't know all the right words for it, but just an incredible legacy, um, backing them and they had done really incredible things. So that was really interesting for me. And I think also the things that we were studying philosophically, um, and, and socially and politically really, were really informative to me also gaining this very different kind of language, um, from the performance world and from Piscata, her teacher, of, of how to move, um, have movement come from the interior. So this like a motive quality that, and nuance that can come from such smaller things inside. Um, so I did that for four years and then I, and then I um, left and I, I started my, I had my own little studio and I was painting, um, I was painting uh, with the rubber. Yeah. <laughs> what a what a journey. San Francisco, <laughs> Rome, New York, and then to live in that environment with all this like nonstop brain food coming at you, you know, from these geniuses basically. Yeah, yeah it's been a lot. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, uh how did that segue into I know you did uh you worked out bodybuilding, you did that for a while. You move, and you're in Brunswick. How how did you so segue how, into how, so, so that all happened kind of so when I was at the theater, um, we didn't have to pay where they didn't pay us, but we didn't have to pay rent, so we just didn't have any money. But there was a yoga studio. <laughs> no expenses, right? There was no expenses, just no money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, there was a yoga studio upstairs, actually on the first floor. And I um, the first night that I, I when I came to New York, I actually showed up. And I had, you know, I had my little, like, my little, had the, you know, the typical New York struggle story. I showed up with my suitcase and um, I, there was a play on that night at the theater. And one of the main women was on stage and I was just like, wow, like she looks amazing. And I went up to her and I'm like, what do you do to your body? And she, she's like, I'm a yoga teacher. Come, come take my class. So I took her class the next day um, in Union Square at Prana and 
I would not have been able to make it through New York these past 10 years had I not had this incredible practice to help me. Um, so yoga became like a different nuance that added to the Qigong and the Tai Chi and like all these different philosophical things that, that really just resonated with me in such a um, penetrating way. And, and so I got my teacher, my teacher training from the yoga studio above the theater and I needed to make money. So I became a personal trainer and I'm just the kind of person that, you know, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it all the way. So I wanted to learn, you know, the nutrition, how to really transform your body, the science within nutrition. Um, so I did bodybuilding as a way to, you know, just really understand like how to manipulate the body and how to be better for my clients. Um, so I did that, you know, that, that helped me make money while I was, uh, making my work and it, it really provided time for me to have more of an open schedule. I would, I would wake up at 5am. I would do my clients at six, seven, eight, nine, And, um, then I'd take a nap and then I'd get in the studio. So it was, um, it was, it was definitely helpful. And then, um, when I was living in Bushwick, when I moved to Bushwick at the same time, um, I, I after I'd been working with the rubber for seven years, I just kind of was tired of it. I wanted to do something different. I wanted to, I didn't want to paint anymore. I didn't, I, I just, I just knew that I needed, I wanted something different. And I was in a depression. It was the middle of winter. Um, and there was this welding factory right next door to me there, this iron working factory. And these guys, uh, it was called Bame. It's over on Grand Street. And these guys are building, you know, the, the bases, the foundations for the buildings in New York. So these big, long pieces of iron and steel that hold up the buildings. And, you know, they're basically over there putting it together. And it was a family owned business, Romanians, um, really just amazing people. And I walked by and I was like, Hey, what's up? Like, I'd love to learn how to work in this material. Um, could I apprentice with you? And they were like, yeah, sure. Come on, come on by anytime. So I started working with them in the afternoons. I learned how to weld, how to cut metal, how to bend metal. Um, just kind of getting familiar with that material in general, um, with sheet metal. It's good. They took you serious. Well, I don't know if they took me seriously, but I'm sure they didn't mind having a cute little blonde hanging out all the time. So, um, we had a great time together and, you know, Adrian, my teacher, uh, will forever have a very special place in my heart. I mean, he showed me, showed me all the ropes. So I was working with, um, uh, sheet metal at the time. So just really simple sheet metal. I worked with them for about a couple of months and then I did this residency called Fountainhead in Miami. And this was a really pivotal point for me in my work because, it was the first time that I had made a very clear decision to work with found objects, found metal. Um, I had more space than I had ever had before. And I had, I had access to collectors who were understanding this different kind of work that I was doing, you know? So like, because I didn't have the community that you get when you go to art school, I was actually showing with a lot of graffiti artists because they, they were like the only other emerging artists that I knew, you know? Um, and, and, and my, my particular, like my insights didn't resonate with that kind of work or that conversation really. So it was really frustrating to me. So I'd stopped showing my work for a while for like, for like four years I stopped. Um, and, uh, once I kind of came into working with metal, I think at that time I was also really starting to develop more of a community within the fine art world. And that, that felt good to me because I was, I was around the art kind of artists that I loved and I admired and I cared for deeply. Um, so where was I? Um, oh, so I was at Fountainhead and, 
so and I was and I started going to the, the metal yards there and I was finding these like incredible colors and these shapes that were just like asking to be manipulated and um because of the all the art deco buildings in Miami and I felt like I felt like I had found the perfect framework to bring back my original skins that I was working with in in 2010 um, because like when I, when I brought in the rubber, like I needed more like a musculature behind it, but the, the metal became like this incredible, like reciprocal body that it had been looked, that it had been looking for to be on top of, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went with that and I was working with that there. I did a series of work called elements and skin. So I was working with marble as a base. I was working with, um, wood and I was working with metal and bringing in these objects from the outside world, I was um, really wanting to consider more conceptually about like what it means to me to be bringing in something that has all this history and these stories behind it. And for me personally, I wasn't so interested in the industrial processing or, or the history of this material. I was more interested in its core, which to me was something that was from the periodic table of elements was something that was made of atoms and was no different from a flower or from me. And I'm always interested in this kind of like shift in perspective in general um, from the viewer to the artwork is if does the viewer, is the viewer going to make space for the work to show itself in that way, for the work to show itself in a way beyond what we are immediately thinking it is, right? So like everyone really wants to get into talking about like, the industry and and the production because the immediate connotation for metal, like you think your phone, your computer, a car, a man-made material, but that's not what it is in my eyes. You know, it's, it's a, it's a living, breathing entity. Um, And, and after, you know, my making, it it has this kind of transmutation of, of, uh, of myself and, and it's been imbued with, with life in a way. So um, yeah, the last couple of years have really been um, just, furthering deeper into that conversation you know my work is really about the ambiguities within perception um and then the importance of abstraction as an intuitive tool um so you know using all of the things that i've that i've had throughout my life of information like from more esoteric eastern practices to um my curiosities within science um i you know i've kind of just been developing a language of of how to it, it tends to be more like metaphors for people of what it is the artist is, is like dealing with and struggling with and understanding, you know, this muscle that we're working and these signals that we're looking for when we're creating work. So I like to talk about that a lot. I like to talk about artists a lot. Um, and then that as, as the work has kind of uh, evolved over the past couple of years, I went from um, having the marbleized skin, like the same kind of skin that I was working with early on with the rubber to making it monochromatic so that shift in in monochrome skin started uh when i first showed my work at volta um when mclean thomas curated it and karen james johnson um was lovely enough to uh, support the work and and do a booth with me there um at the time i was i was looking at ways to kind of further what i had been doing i i i started looking at artists that were uh 
not, I wouldn't say necessarily always minimalist, but more artists that were at the end of their career and at the end of their life. I was curious. I was like, okay, so, you know, you've been working for 60 years on this thing. Like, what are you interested in? How are you going to like leave this world? You know? And what I noticed was like, everything was simplified. Everything that a lot of these artists that were doing, even in their, even in their conversations and their mindsets and the things that they were interested in talking about, there was just a lot more simplicity um, to it. And I was like, you know, I'm just, I'm going to do that now. So I started working with um, just a single color of paint skin. And um, to me, that turned out very, really successful. I think it, 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 it gave it a, a sense of maturity and refinement that I had been looking for um, for a long time. Um, and then that, that work continued to evolve over the year. And I did a show of uh, copper work after that. So I was working specifically with this really beautiful, kind of weathered copper whose patinas were um, full of bright blues and, and magentas and these different colors. And I was using the paint skins as a way to continue to articulate this gesture, uh, this painterly gesture and this composition, how the eyes read all paintings um, from the metal. So like finding this way of having like the metal and the paint have a conversation um, where they become one. And I think in that moment, there was a really... Uh, a strong moment of, of seeing the reciprocity between the material, seeing how there was um, just so much conversation and language happening between the two. Um, and I was calling upon, I was looking at these Renaissance painters who used to actually, some of them would use copper as their canvas. So they would, they would beat the, com the copper up and they would dent it and they would um, kind of manipulate it so that it could hold the oil paint so it wouldn't just like slide off. Um, and just like thinking about this idea of how interesting it is that we're using the same materials and they're manifesting in such different ways. Um, it's just, yeah. that, I mean, listening to you describe the copper with the skins and this, you know, monograph color, it's, it's, uh, you can just envision it. It's beautiful in my mind. I'm, I'm seeing it. Um, <laughs> do, do you, uh, can you comment on the, the weight of, uh, of your work? Because mm -hmm. I know I've seen it on a pedestal and I've seen it hung on walls, but it, they always look really heavy. Um, yeah. Well, so one thing that I love that I know you have done is that you've seen a lot of my work in person. I think a lot of people haven't seen my work in person yet, which is, it, I, I, I think it's a very different experience, especially with sculpture, getting to see it in the round and really take it in. Um, in this moment and for the past couple of years, all of the metal that I've worked with is metal that I can generally pick up by myself. Um, I recently, one of my, my dear friend, Faith has been an amazing companion in, in the past year or so she's been coming with me to, um, the salvage yards and to the demolition sites and helping me, uh, pick things up. But, you know, um, I only, I have one person in my studio with me once or twice a week. Um, so it, it, it's really important at, in, in this moment for me to be able to move things around if I, to the best of my ability. Um, so most of them are fairly light. Uh, I, I am moving into a stage where I'm like thinking about maybe we should put a crane in here. Mm -hmm. um, we got to figure out other ways to move this shit around because right. I almost broke my back the other day. Oh. Um, but, you know, it's uh, they're, they're, they're generally fairly light. And I think even even I mean, even the heavier pieces, they're still only like one of the heaviest pieces I have to date. I just um, I started working on it. It'll be in a show in September. Um, it's, um, I mean, it's maybe 200 pounds, which, which considering is not that much. So do you encourage people to touch your work? Do you want them to feel it? 
Not really. <laughs> no, I don't. I mean, I think that, um, I don't know. It, I, it's just not for that. I mean, it's sometimes it can be a little sharp and, you know, I don't want the skins to get messed up. I, you know, I coming from having such a physical, I used to, I used to, when I was younger, I used to be like, go ahead, kiss the painting. I know you want to. Um, but uh, I think, you know, and, and at that time too, even the way that I would care for my work, I was so, I, I mean, I was just so, I was so like, I didn't really have the, the, the way to care for my work. You know, it was just me, my studio. So I would roll this shit up. I'd throw it over my shoulder. I'd take the train up to Harlem or whatever, wherever I was taking the work. So there wasn't like this kind of pristine quality to it. And now, you know, it's like, once it leaves my studio, it, I don't, you know, we, we put it in the crate, we cover it with foam. It's like, as soon as the piece is done, it is, it needs to stay pristine. And, mm -hmm. you know, one of my biggest goals and one thing that's really important to me at this point in my life, my career is, is my archival process. Um, so I, I, we go to great measures to, you know, make sure that each piece goes out with the coordinating color. If something were to scuff it up and, and everything's like very well documented and organized and, um, you know, they, they, my, they're my babies and they mean a lot to me. And I really want them to be taken care of over the next 100, 200, 300 years and, and be able to live and live well. So, so, so 100 years from now, what do you want people to think or feel when viewing your work? Or even two years from now? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you don't really have control over what people think or how they feel. And I, I do ask people and I ask viewers to, to challenge the immediate ideas they're confronted with, what their immediate responses are, because our brains will trick us into thinking what we've, and, and, and they'll, they'll tell us that we've already figured it out. When in reality, we've just begun to, to scratch the surface of, of what our actual opinions really are. So this kind of goes back to this idea of like, um, the con like ch challenging the, con the conditioned mindset. And, and, and opening, there, there's like this closure that happens in experience for all of us because we've, we already have all of our own ideas about how everything is or what it is or like our, our eyes and our brains, like the, basically the way the eye and the brain works is it, it, it already comes up with this information. So we're, we're basically trained to already know how we feel and what is the reality of it. But the truth is that we, we have no idea. And I think that bringing a certain kind of awareness um, around that truth um, opens up worlds for uh, a deeper, more metaphysical experience. So, you know, for, for me with this work, I think that there is this, this kind of a little sensitivity and a little um, specialness to the life that they, that, that each of the pieces carry and, and that they, and that they do have that kind of presence. Um, but I mean, that's my own personal philosophy on, on what I, I like to challenge viewers to do. I don't really know how they're going to feel or think, but. Um, well, I know when I saw your work for the first time, it, it did draw curiosity. I was very curious about the the skin mm -hmm. and I, I, I didn't dare touch it. Right. <laughs> um, but you wanted to. You wanted to. <laughs> I wanted to. And. Uh, and the fact that it was combined with this heavy material, it was like a combination of um, uh, the feminine and the masculine. Uh, it, but it does, your work does, did force me to, to think. I did have a curiosity about it. Um, well, I think, I mean, I think that there's, like our entire existence is based on dual forces, you know, and for me to show something 
that's more fragile and then something that's more kind of abject and sharp and derelict, you know, it, it um, to, it's, I don't think something looks whole unless there are dualities to it. And, and it, 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 with that in mind, you know, some of my work, um, I've been incorporating more of my own personal story um, into that philosophy because, you know, I have, I've had a really, I've had an interesting experience um, personally, you know, being a bi-rate, being my mom's black and my dad's white, kind of always living in this space of ambiguity in some way, you know, and for me, it's always been more of an observer, you know, just, you know, seeing the way that somebody w- would respond to, to me. I mean, I think people always talk about me talking about like gender or, um, you know, those dualities, but it's, but I'm not, I'm not really talking about them. I'm always talking about humanity and I'm talking about consciousness and I'm talking about the connectivity and the oneness of all of that. But in my personal experience, in the way that the world has reacted to me, um, you know, I've, I've been able to kind of be like entertained and observe um, the confusion that happens to people um, in that duality. And that's always just been kind of more entertaining to me than anything. So I've been working through, um, I guess maybe giving more biographical reveals of some sort in my shows and in my, in my own personal thing. I've, I've been a diarist my whole life. Um, I have journals going back to when I was, you know, in first grade. And, and I think writing for myself um, has been another cathartic practice, practice of mine. And I think documenting has been something that just is very natural to me. And so I'm kind of incorporating, um, you know, my own story uh, and my own experiences in this life so far um, into this kind of more philosophical uh, perception of the world. Yeah, well, uh, I love it. I love it. I have a great appreciation <laughs> for it. So um, it's been great talking. So I'm going to ask you our final question. And it is, um, what are projects that you're excited about now? Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Well, now that everything's on hold, <laughs> um, let's see, projects that I'm excited about. I, I think that... Um, I, I mean, you know, I know we weren't we weren't really going to talk about uh, Corona, but it's it is kind of hard to avoid. And I'm maybe from a different note on it. I'm really curious to know how this will shift our interpretation on existence. You know, I really I believe that when people are confronted with the fleetingness of life um, and are reminded of how fragile it is, uh, there tends to be a more authentic interaction. There seems to be a lot less bullshit and a lot more, um, I guess more like genuine engagement and genuine desire to be with the people that you really like, the people that you really love. And there's not so much fluff around that. So, and, and I'm also curious to see how that's going to change our technology, um, how we interact with each other. Um, I think the next 10 years, we're going to see some of the most incredible things happen. Um, with regards to the study of neurology and psychology and consciousness and this generation is going to, I mean, I think everyone is kind of craving for more substance in general. Um, so, you know, I think that's always been like my own personal um, interest, which is like how society and, and civilizations shift um, as a response to uh larger things in the world happening like pandemics or, you know, or like, you know, when civilizations basically have their own um, irrigation system or when like all of the things that don't threaten their lives are taken care of. There's like this opening for philosophy and science and art. 
Um, and uh, I don't know, I think that's going to be interesting. I currently have a proposal out um, called the Intimacy Hospital. And I'm waiting to hear back if that project's going to happen or not. But I can't talk about it unless I know. But I think that could be interesting. I'm also working on some uh, public art projects, um, doing some a lot more larger scale outdoor public pieces, large sculptures. And then um, just as far as like shows go, um, tentatively, depending on what happens, um, Suzanne Bielmitter and I will be doing a solo show called Salient Queens in September in mm-hmm. L.A., Loved it. Um, thank you. Yeah, I can't wait to share more about it. And then um, I'll, ha- I'll also be having a show that was supposed to happen this weekend um, in Milan at Pogali Gallery. Um, so yeah, th- those are those are the things that I'm working on right now. I mean, it's going to be, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back in the studio and um, coming home and, and just getting back to work. It's going to be a really busy summer. Um, but thank you so much for taking time and, and listening and, and asking such excellent questions. You know, it's a pleasure. And I've, I've seen you often, I've seen your work often, but we haven't had a chance to just sit down and talk. So mm-hmm. it's a delight to learn more, more about you and your view on things. And I hope that what we're going through now brings out the best in people. And I hope that's a, a long-term phenomena versus a, a short-term but uh, time will tell. And uh, mm-hmm. thank you very much. And en- of course. enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. you too. You too. Have a good day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram. 